right. Well, welcome, everyone, to uh, worship today. For those of you who may be new to Grace, we're in a series right now where we're looking at Jesus walking among the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, these seven churches, as you can see them named here, and they're all connected well by Roman roads, uh, they have something in common. Jesus is paying them a visit. He's sorting and sifting them, and he has a personal message for every one of them. In our first week, we looked at these. We talked about Ephesus and Laodicea, the two southernmost churches. Then, last week, we talked about Smyrna and Philadelphia. And today, we're looking at the Lord's message to the two churches called Pergamum, way up here, and Sardis, right here. You can see those highlighted, Pergamum and Sardis. But first, we want to talk about what the Lord had to say to the church at Pergamum. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write down there regarding this church in a town called Pergamum, you might want to write down the compromising church. Let's see what Jesus had to say as he pays them a visit. And remember, this message is not just for these ancient churches. This message is very relevant, very relevant for every one of us today. Chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you've been trekking with us, you probably immediately recognize that we've run into that image before, right? We saw that in chapter 1, where Jesus have a, had a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's an image. It sounds strange to our ears. But in this ancient world and in this type of literature, it was an image of power. Not to give too, well, uh, not to spoil it for you, but we're going to see that image again in chapter 19, where Jesus comes riding on a white horse with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And for those of you who may be familiar with other parts of the Bible, it, it also appears in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged or two-edged sword. Now, what do we know about this town called Pergamum? If Ephesus was the New York of Asia, and it was in a sense, it was the largest city, Pergamum is sort of the Washington of Asia, the Washington, D.C., because it was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, Pergamum. It was sort of a cross, if you will, between Washington, D.C., with all of its political power, and Las Vegas, Nevada, with all of its party life. This was a party city. People tried just about everything in search of fulfillment. Now, as with most of these cities, I could spend a half hour just filling you with details about the city, how it got started, some of the prominent people there, but the tour bus is moving too fast. We don't have time for that. 
to stop and sip the cappuccino that long. But I do want to highlight three things about this city called Pergamum that I think are noteworthy for our study. One, it had a whole lot of temples there, and one of the temples was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. In other words, this was the first city, Pergamum, that had officially taken on emperor worship and actually dedicated a temple for that very purpose. I think that's important to understand the culture and the environment in which these Christians were living. Emperor worship was literally promoted there. There was a temple dedicated for that very purpose. The second temple I want to highlight in Pergamum that I think is helpful in understanding the environment is the one that was dedicated to the God of healing, little g God. I I might want to add the words false God uh, because that's what it was. But to the false God of healing, this God was known as Asclepius. And all over Asia and all over the Roman world, people came from all around to get healing at the temple of Asclepius for some sort of ailment they might have. And the priest who presided over this particular temple were famous all over the known world, famous for their process of healing. People would come and spend sometimes days, sometimes weeks there. Others would only be able to stay for a day or two, and some would get temporary relief for their ailments, but it always came with a twist. Here's what I mean. The symbol for this God of healing was the serpent. Now, just to let you in here, if you're not familiar with the Bible, just about every time, just about every time you see the serpent or a symbol of a serpent in the Scripture, it always has to do with leading someone away from God. And so although, and that was the official symbol for this temple and this God, Asclepius. So although they got temporary help, it always came with a twist. They were opening a portal Uh, in themselves for the work of the enemy. The third temple I want to highlight, which I think is particularly relevant to us understanding this city and what God says to the church there, is that in the honor of the ancient Greek god known as Zeus, there was a massive altar and throne set up that towered above the city. Now, if you're familiar with ancient Greek mythology, you've heard of Zeus, right? There's a huge pantheon of gods in Greek mythology, and Zeus is the most powerful one of all, right? Zeus, the god known as Zeus, sort of the big daddy of them all, the father, the most powerful one. Well, Pergamum was built on a high place, but towering far above the city, another 800 feet higher, was the throne and the altar dedicated to Zeus. Now, let me help you understand, just so you can picture how prominent that must have felt. In the city of Albany, there's a skyline, and the highest building that towers above, really, all the others 
is the Erastus Corning Tower. All of you know that, right? In fact, some of you work in that building every single day and or you've been in it before, right? 44-story building. It's one of the most prominent features, if not the most prominent, of the skyline of Albany, along with the egg and a few other buildings that are distinct. And this 44-story building, the Erastus Corning Tower, is 589 feet tall. That's how tall it is, 589 feet. Well, imagine, 211 feet higher, the throne of Zeus. Imagine that. You're a Christian in Pergamum, and you're literally living beneath the shadow. 90 feet square, 20 feet high, the throne dedicated to the mythical Greek god, Zeus. You literally live in its shadow every single day. Now, with that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus said to the people in the church of Pergamon. Verse 13, I know where you live where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. It's kind of encouraging, really, that in a city like this, with so many temples dedicated to either the Caesars or to false gods, that here was a faithful band of Christians living. He even highlights one of them, someone named Antipas. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas. In fact, it's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. But church history tells us that when he was martyred, he was actually a teenager. And he died, I'm sorry to tell you this, in a rather gruesome way. He was put in a big brass bowl and literally boiled alive in oil in the city square of Pergamum because he refused to engage in emperor worship. And Jesus here says, look, this hasn't escaped my notice. And he holds up Antipas as a glowing example of faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. This young man, Antipas, an outstanding Christ follower, when the church in Pergamum first had someone come and read this letter aloud to them in church, they knew exactly who this guy was. Some had grown up with him. They'd fished with him, played ball with him. They knew his family. And Jesus says, I know how much it can cost to follow me. And so, as with most of these churches, Jesus begins with an acknowledgement of some positive things about them. But then he turns a corner and mentions two ways that they have compromised. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. First, they have compromised morally, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who told a hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Now, let's push pause there. 
I've told you many times, I'll tell you a few more times without trying to drive you crazy or make you nuts over this, but I I just want to make sure you get it. The key to understanding the revelation is the Old Testament. Now, we're not going to pause long enough because the tour bus is honking its horn right now, and there's too many exciting things to see on our tour, so we can't stop there right now and sip the cappuccino. But just to say in passing, if you want to study this on your own and go back later, you can read the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapters 22 to 24, and find out all about Balaam and Balak. But suffice to say now, because the tour bus is moving, these were agents who led the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry. And Jesus is saying, look, that same kind of thing is happening in the church today. What it kind of comes around, goes around, it comes around over and over again in a cyclical fashion. And so the church in Pergamum, likewise is struggling with immorality. They're dropping their guard and beginning to drift a bit morally. But secondly, they're also compromising doctrinally. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that word doctrine or doctrinally, it's simply talking about theological beliefs. They were getting a little fuzzy, a little sloppy with their doctrine. Verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you've been trekking with us, you know we've run into that word before, right? In our message to Ephesus two weeks ago, uh, Jesus mentioned the Nicolaitans there. So without going through it all again, let me recap who they are. A man named Nicholas was a Gnostic teacher. Gnosticism, as I shared then, was the first big heresy that the church battled in its early days. In short, Gnosticism taught, it's a very dangerous teaching, that the body is evil and doesn't really matter. It's just evil. And the spirit or soul is good. In fact, one of their key teachings was that Jesus really didn't come in a body because he would never contaminate himself with a body. So they denied the incarnation. They said he only seemed to be in a body. Did you ever see his footprints on the sand by the beach? Come on. He only seemed to be in a body, but he was really just spirit. A serious doctrinal flaw. And so the corollary of their teaching was that, look, since the body is evil, what you do with your body really doesn't matter. You can abuse it. You can commit sexual immorality all you want. It doesn't really matter. You can imagine (laughs) what kind of loose living that would lead to. Now, even though people today don't call it Gnosticism, brothers and sisters, are you listening to me? Gnosticism is alive and well in the church today, really. Never call it that. But I meet people all the time, all the time. It's amazing how many people, both inside and outside the church, are really Gnostics at heart. It's just my body. But it doesn't really matter because it's not really touching me. It's not really touching who I am. It's not really affecting my soul. It's just my body. Really? And so we allow our body, thinking it's only our body to engage in all kinds of things, but in reality, it's wreaking havoc with our soul. 
So let me just say to you, there will always be Nicolaitans in the church. People who say and teach what itching ears want to hear. And I want to tell you, it is very tempting just to say what people want to hear. Can I just be honest with you and confess that as a pastor, as a preacher? I I know, I know when teachings are hard. I know when they're not popular. But you see, our mandate as Christ followers is to teach the Word of God. In season and out of season, whether it's popular or not, when it's received with you know, joy or when it's seen with a scoffing attitude, we must deliver the truth. But there will always be people who will shy away from that. And churches who are caught up in that, uh, it's kind of the frog in the kettle effect. Usually it's not blatant, it just is off a little bit and gradually and gradually and gradually the frog gets cooked in the kettle. Gradually, people get led astray, and they don't realize what's happening until it's too late. Well, here's the deal. Jesus says, I hate that. I hate that. Why such a strong reaction from the Lord? Because he knows the damage it does to his church. And Jesus is looking for a people, his bride, his church, that are fully mature, fully Christ-centered, all God designed us to be. But the people of Pergamon are drifting into sloppy doctrine. They'd lowered the bar, watered down the gospel, and the result was doctrinal delusion. The lights on their lampstand are beginning to flicker, and if they're not careful, it's going to be snuffed out. Jesus minces no words in verse 16. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now I want to be very clear before we move on from this point, lest any of you misunderstand because it often gets misunderstood. Jesus is not recommending here that Christians need to live 50 miles from the nearest known sin. Some of you just took that away from the teaching. That, that's immediately what you concluded. Well, we need to stay away from anything. That, no, no, no. The problem was not that Christians were in Pergamum. Pergamum needed Christians in it. The problem was that Pergamum was in the Christians. They were beginning to take on its values. That was the problem. I know it's trite, but it's so true. Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's the way we're supposed to live. And that is challenging. By the way, just want to tell you guys, in case you don't know, you live in the most postmodern, post-Christian city in America. The whole capital region is that. Say, what does that mean, Pastor? To say postmodern or post-Christian is simply to say that the things, the beliefs, the values that we hold sacred as followers of Jesus are generally not held sacred by this particular culture. You say, wow, I I really knew that already. I, I had discovered that, Pastor, that not everybody agrees with what I believe or cherishes what I cherish. What I'm saying to you is it's easier to be a Christian in Tennessee where I grew up 
There's a much higher percentage of people who cherish Christian values, but we happen to live, and I've told you this I know before, but I think it's kind of cool, actually. Jesus needs Christians in the Capital District. That's where we live. I'm glad we're here. I'm thrilled to be living here, that God called me here. I think it's really cool. But the problem will be if the Capital District gets in the Christians. Ooh, there's when we got a problem. And there's when Jesus might pay us a visit and go, I hate that. I hate that when the culture with its twisted values gets in the Christians. That's a problem. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he makes a mysterious comment. Watch this now. To him who overcomes... I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on it known only to him who receives it. What in the world does that mean? I promise you I won't keep bugging you with this every time it occurs, but occasionally I'll keep mentioning it. The key to understanding the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. The manna that God provided for his people as recorded in the Old Testament gave them strength for their wilderness journeys. God says, look, in the middle of your journey through this wilderness of persecution, I'm going to come and provide strength for you. I'm going to provide manna in the morning. How encouraging that must have been to these beleaguered Christians. But then what is this thing about where he says, I'm going to give you this white stone. What, what is that about? Well, there's a lot of possibilities the commentators give. One possibility is that, and this is true, uh, in the Jewish um, system, they didn't ha- when someone was under trial for a crime or some wrongdoing, they didn't have a um, kind of a uh, uh, jury foreman like we have who comes out and announces the verdict. Here's how they announce the verdict. They had a dark stone and a white stone. A dark stone and a white stone. If they held up the dark stone, it meant guilty as charged. If they held up the white stone, it this meant this person has been tried and justly acquitted. They are totally free from all accusations. Now, if that's indeed what it means, isn't that kind of cool? By the way, the person would often carry around a white stone with him to be able to demonstrate I'm free from the charge of crime that was placed against me. It's also true historically that entrance, tickets of admission into public festivals in this day were often white stones. There was a lot of this stone around that area, by the way. So it was easy to quarry and use. Admission to public festivals and events was often a particular white stone, and this meaning may fit the context best here. Jesus may be saying this white stone may be a symbol of admission to the Messianic feast or the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, as an overcomer, you are victorious, and you're going to receive a white stone signifying you're forgiven, you're free, you have admission to the feast. Now, what is this new name thing, though? What is that about? 
I'm going to give you a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What's that about? Well, that's intriguing. Isn't that provocative? It says, God's going to give you a new name. You say, I've already got a name. Well, he says, I'm going to give you a new name, and it'll just be a name. Just a, It's kind of this intimate connection between you and me. We're the only ones who know the name. Now, some of you who are married may have a special kind of pet name for your spouse, right? Husbands, you may call your wife Honey Dumpling or something like that, you know? Just kind of a special little endearing term that you use. And, and men, she may call you, I don't know, Stud Muffin or something like that. I don't, I don't know what she calls you, but, but often there's this little intimate connection, little pet name. Uh, my wife's name is Debbie, and her formal name is Deborah. And I don't know, I don't know where I even started this, but I seized on that last syllable some years ago, Deborah, Ra, Ra, Ra. And I call her Ra. Isn't that weird? I just call her Ra. And so she'll call me on the phone. I'll see it's her. And I'll say, hey, Ra, how's it going? I don't know. Uh, it's just this name I have, and it's become this little pet name that I have for, for Debbie. Well, I wonder what your pet name with the Lord is going to be. I wonder what mine will be. I wonder if some of you, your name will be Overcomer. Because remember, from last week, Jesus knows. He knows. He knows all the things you've overcome. He knows all the hurdles in your life. For some of you, that name may be faithful because he understands how you have persevered through the ups and downs of life and how many things you have endured to be faithful to him. For some of you, that name may be joy because he knows all the legitimate reasons you have to be downcast. And yet in him and in his strength, you maintain that spirit of joy by his spirit. And that may be the name written on your stone. I don't know, but I wonder what your new name will be. I find that kind of cool. In fact, I think that's one of the most provocative little details about this whole book. So his message to Pergamum is clear. Look, You've had a faithful witness in Antipas. You, you've got some good things going on. But listen, you're beginning to compromise. Be careful. But then we'll turn our attention to the church in Sardis. And if Pergamum was the compromising church, you might want to write down for Sardis the sleeping church. Let's look at chapter 3 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis Right. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And notice what he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, it's really important for you to understand this. Because of that phrase, you have a reputation of being alive. Now, we cannot prove this. 
but a number of scholars in trying to study these churches have concluded that because of that commendation, you have a reputation of being alive. There's, there's sort of a theory going. Again, nobody can prove this like a slam dunk. But that Sardis might have been the largest numerically of the seven churches. The city wasn't the largest. Ephesus was. But the church in Sardis may have been the largest church of the seven. That's the theory. I mean, they had it going on. They had the killer website. They had so many activities After their services, there was a gridlock of camels and donkeys out in the parking lot, stretched out for a mile trying to get out of the parking lot. I mean, this is one happening church in Sardis. They had Christian music festivals. Churches came to Sardis to learn how to do church better. They were big and growing. Their reputation of being a lively, thriving church spread all over Asia Minor. Do you know any churches like that? And then Jesus said to them, you have a reputation of being alive. But the truth of the matter is, you're dead. Now, come on. Try to put yourself in the sandals of one of the people in the church at Sardis who first heard this letter being read aloud to the congregation. How would you feel? I'll tell you, when the reader got to that part, I think I'd have stood up and cleared my throat and said, excuse excuse me, there's gotta be another Sardis somewhere. I I don't think this is talking about us. I mean, look around. This can't be us. And Jesus would say, no, it's for you. And they'd say, but Lord, look at our bulletin. I mean, there's all kind. look at the website. This church is happening. Look at what's going on. Our programs and activities are amazing. And then maybe, maybe the Lord would deliver this message. And I want you to write it down because this is a huge lesson for all of us. Activity for Christ does not equal intimacy with Christ. Activity. Running around busy in the church building every night of the week. Doing things in the name of the church. Going to Christian events. Filling your life with Christian activity does not equal intimacy with Christ. Jesus says, wake up, you're incomplete, your work is unfinished, you're spiritually dead, and your lampstand is about to be snuffed out. Wow. Now, why would Jesus say, wake up? Well, I find this really intriguing. The word watch, as some of your translations may have, or wake up, as others may have, was a particularly relevant term to the people in Sardis. Sardis had been a very prosperous city for a long time, but it had been in decline for some time now, for roughly 90 years. It had kind of been declining. And Sardis had suffered a massive earthquake some decades earlier that they never fully recovered from. And much like Pergamum, Sardis was built on a hill. In fact, 
its terrain around it was probably the most striking of all these cities. It, it wasn't on a press. I mean, it was like an impregnable fortress. 1,500 feet high. It was built on the top of these cliffs that were sheer cliffs on three sides. People would look up at Sardis, look up at that city and go, nobody's ever going to take that over. There was only one potential approach to the city on the fourth side. That's all. So if anybody was going to take it, that's the, only, that's the place they had to take it. Nobody's ever going to conquer this city. And yet Sardis had been conquered twice. Once by Cyrus the Great of Persia and once by Antiochus the Great when Acneas was king of Sardis. You say, well, how did it happen? It's 1,500 feet up, sheer cliffs on three sides. They can't get ropes and climb up. There's only one possible approach. If you just put a few guards there and they stay vigilant, nobody's ever going to be able to capture this city. And yet they were captured twice. You know how? Not through bribery, not through helicopters or drones, not through artillery shelling. There was no way you could throw a projectile that far in those days. Sardis was captured because its guards and soldiers literally on two occasions fell asleep and the enemy, while they were sleeping, crept in and overtook the city. And this became a huge embarrassment to the city of Sardis. This was a black eye to their reputation. People actually mocked them and made jokes about it that twice their guards had fallen asleep and the impregnable city had been captured. So Jesus takes advantage of this illustration in the wording and he says, wake up. You're about to make the same mistake with your church that the guards made with the city. And when you're asleep, the enemy has an opportunity to come in and conquer you. What a poignant lesson. The church of Sardis had a great past, but it seems here that it was resting on its reputation and Jesus saw danger ahead. Now church, can I just, can I just talk to your heart for one moment about us? Because I think in some ways, we, we have some things in common with this church in Sardis. And we want to make sure that what happened to them as a city doesn't happen to us as a church. Can I tell you something? Have you ever wondered when death comes to a church? Because Jesus said, wake up, strengthen what's remains and is about to die. Jesus said, this is about to die. When does a church die? Can I, can I tell you when a church is in genuine danger of death? Here it is. Death comes when memories of the past supersede the vision for the future. That's the truth. Death comes for a church when memories of the past, oh, those were the good old days, 
oh, wasn't that special what God did? Death comes for a church when memories of the past supersede the vision for the future. We need to always be a whole lot more eager and excited about what God is about to do in the future than what he's already done in the past. Show me any church that's more excited about the memories of the past than they are the vision for the future, and I'll show you a church that's right on the edge of death. They may have a reputation. They may have cool things going for them. The website may be kicking. But if they're more excited about the past than they are about what God's going to do in the future, they're in trouble. And that's where Sardis was. They found solace in their size. They found purpose in their programs. And all the time, their faith was faltering. Some time ago, Disney World started doing exit interviews to find out how people felt about their experience at Disney World. And they were shocked some years ago, to find that people were actually leaving, many people, disappointed. (laughs) Executives of Disney said, how can that be? We're the greatest theme park in the world. Our purpose statement is three words, provide people happiness. That's it. That's what we do best, provide people happiness. And yet we've got people leaving saying, I'm disappointed. But here's the intriguing part. In the exit interviews and surveys, people weren't disappointed about the intense heat. They weren't disappointed about the incredibly long lines. They weren't even disappointed about the unbelievably high prices. They were disappointed because they had taken family vacation time. Some of them have driven long distances, brought their family, spent hundreds, yay, thousands of dollars in many cases And they'd come to see one character. And even though they'd been there all day, long hours looking, they'd failed to see the person they came to see. You know who they came to see, right? Mickey Mouse. They came to see Mickey. And so many were leaving without having seen Mickey Mouse. Well, the executives were a little defensive. They said, look, we're not going to change the aura of the place. We can't have Mickey's just running over, running around everywhere. It would be such a tragedy if some little kid was waving at Mickey while they were on, riding on a tram. And just as they're waving goodbye to Mickey Mouse, they turn and there's another Mickey around the corner over here. That would be horrible. It'd be like two Santa Clauses on one street. We can't do that. So they got a bright idea. They decided, we're going to address this disappointment. And their idea was to make sure everybody had a chance to see Mickey Mouse. And so they decided that every day, at the same time every day, there would be a parade right down Main Street at Disney World, and Mickey Mouse would be at the head of that parade, the Grand Marshal. Chance for everybody who wants to see Mickey to see him. And what was the result? When the people left, guess what? No one was disappointed. Can I tell you something, church? Whether people realize it or not, when they come to Grace Fellowship, they come to see one person. No, it's not the worship leader, it's certainly not the preacher, it's not even the lead pastor. 
When people come to this church, they come to see Jesus Christ. May they never be disappointed. In everything we do, let's hold Jesus high. In all of our singing, in all of our worship, in all of our preaching, in all of our praying, in all of our conversations, in all of our counseling, in all of our care for hurting people, let's do one thing. Let's make sure Jesus is front and center. That's who they came to see. Revelation 3 reads, remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. In other words, there are a few that are still faithful. They're not going to church out of habit or ritual or guilt. They're going to worship God. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me, I will deny Maybe, like the church in Pergamum, you've wanted just enough faith to feel comfortable at church, but not so much you feel uncomfortable with your friends on Friday. Maybe it's time, instead of compromise, to turn to commitment. Or maybe, like the church in Sardis, you've been asleep in the light for too long. It's time to wake up and strengthen what remains. Father, we need you. Thank you that you are the one that this is all about. And when people gather together at our churches, may they see Jesus. May they not go away disappointed because they had a personal meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. May we lift you high in all that we do and may you receive the glory for we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.